Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome back to episode number 41 of the podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jade Tita and we're talking all about the female metabolism, fat loss, personal development, fitness, so many interesting topics. And for those who don't know who Dr. Jade Tita is, he's an integrated physician, author and sought out expert in the realm of metabolism and self-development. He spent the last 25 years immersed in the study of strength and conditioning, hormone metabolism and the psychology of change and success. He's the founder and creator of international health and fitness company Metabolic Effect and the author of several books including bestsellers Metabolic Effect Diet and Metabolic Aftershock. He's also contributed to both the exercise and sports nutrition chapters of the textbook of natural medicine. And his newest company, Next Level Human, combines his medical and fitness knowledge with his expertise in self-development and mindset change. He's recently released two new books available on Amazon, Next Level Tribe and Human 365. The best place to find him and all of his materials is at his website, jtita.com and I'll definitely be including all of his links in the show notes to this episode as well. And I have to apologise for my sick voice currently, I'm just overcoming a cold. Thankfully we recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago so it's not affecting the recording. And in this episode we discuss what exactly the metabolism is, how we can influence it, metabolic flexibility, the difference between weight loss and fat loss, female hormones and how hormones play a role in weight management, how to keep our schmeck in check, and if you've no idea what we're talking about then definitely listen to the whole whole episode and you'll get a good idea of what this acronym is. And we also touch more on exercise around your cycles, kind of cycle syncing, as I've spoken about before, supplements, mindset, personal development, so many great things. So I'm sure you're going to love this episode as much as I loved recording with Jade. Well, hi Jade, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey Vivian, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, and for those watching on YouTube, you can appreciate Jade's backdrop right now. And if you're listening on audio, he's got this beautiful forest behind him and I'm very jealous. North Carolina, for those who are wondering, North Carolina. area it's like very lush and fall weather starting to kick in so lovely and you can do some nice forest bathing there as well yeah exactly (laughs) so why don't you start off by telling us a bit about you who you are and why you chose to specialize in the world of weight loss and metabolism specifically yeah well you know I mean it's really sometimes when I go through this story of how this began for me it is 
tricky because um, where I thought I was going to end up is exactly the opposite where I actually ended up. So um, to give everyone just a quick sort of rundown of me, I like to say, uh, take a personal trainer, right? I did that for 25 years. Throw that in a blender. You know, that's basically working with people in and around the gym and very engaged with weight training, mainly in high intensity interval training. Matter of fact, I was one of the first back when CrossFit was starting out. I was doing one of the first uh, in that sort of uh, place where we were doing lots of mixed metabolic conditioning. So I was that for 25 years. So that goes in the blender. And then, of course, I um, was fell in love with biochemistry, I have an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. And I went on to medical school, but not your traditional medical school. I actually studied integrative natural medicine at a place called Bastyr University in the United States. It's up in Seattle, the northwest of the United States. And they, they basically specialize in lifestyle medicine. So take a you know, family practitioner, physician, throw that in the blender, but realize my expertise is in lifestyle medicine. So while I can prescribe drugs and, and often do, mainly hormones, I mainly do diet and exercise intervention. And then the other thing to know about me is since the time I was 18 years old, I am just one of these guys who just loves psychology. I minored in it. I've studied my whole life. I'm a deep reader into philosophy and things like that and very passionate about the psychology of change. And so throw that into the blender. And then one more aspect to this is as I was practicing in the realm of weight loss, all these things kind of brought me to an expertise in metabolism and weight loss. And what do you think happens when you're working in that field? You get mostly female clients. And so as a result of that, I had to kind of be uh, sort of dragged kicking and screaming by my female clients out of my ignorant, arrogant, male-dominated worldview into a place where women were essentially saying to me, I'm not a man. I don't, you know, um, respond the same way you do. I must, obviously, my hormones must play a role and make a difference in the way I show up in the world, the way I look, the things I crave to eat, my energy levels, the way I perform. And at first, in my younger years, I have to be honest, I was very naive to that and was just sort of this very ignorant, arrogant person saying, hey, just do what I tell you to do. If you're not getting results, then you're just not following the plan. And eventually, um, because I, I was lucky enough to have some uh, of my female clients put me in my place and at the time in a very harsh way but now I look at it as a, a gift to me um, I started to research and look into everything there was to know about female hormones and uh, how they function and how a female metabolism is different than a male metabolism and then all of a sudden I started to get well known for that and that's why you have this sort of big burly looking bald guy who's talking about menses and menopause and PCOS and hypothyroid with women because I think, unfortunately, obviously a woman should be doing this work and be the one doing this, but I think what happened was there just weren't a lot of people talking about it. And up until 2001, actually, most of the regulating bodies in science and these journals still did not mandate that women were included equally in these studies. So most of the studies we were seeing were done on young, college-aged males. And I think because I was maybe one of the first people to start talking about this, maybe I got uh, well known for that. And that's become my expertise. So all of that informs me. And I hope that's a long-winded way of just saying what I'm all about and hopefully can segue us into this discussion. Definitely. I do want to touch more on the 
differences between male and females because you're right even a lot of the nutrition advice these days is very male orientated so the bulletproof and fasting and um, restriction it, it doesn't really work the same for female bodies but let's start off with what exactly is metabolism so starting off at the very basics what it, what it is and how can it be influenced yeah the best way to think about this very simply is that the metabolism is your stress response system i like to think of it as one big stress barometer what it does is it looks out into the outside world by sight by hearing by the food it digests by touch by temperature it takes in all this information from the outside world and it essentially has to translate that information to the inside cells so that they can respond to the environmental realities out in the world how much food is available what season is it all of those kinds of things and so the metabolism uses what I would say uh, is almost like software program to get the information that's coming from the outside world to the inside cells. And that software is what I would call hormones. So if you thought of the metabolism almost like a computer, you would see that the eyes, the taste perceptions, temperature are kind of like the keyboard on the computer or the modem or the internet or, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, mouse or whatever, right? It's sort of all this information that it's gathering. And then the hormones, the software program, translate to the computer how to respond. And then that computer responds. So very simply, the metabolism is your response mechanism to stress. And so when you look at it that way, all of a sudden you start to realize, okay, well, that's interesting. What if I'm not under any stress? What does my metabolism do with that? What if I'm under a lot of stress? What does my metabolism do with that? And even begs the question of this word stress, what actually is stress to the metabolism? Because it's not necessarily, stress to the metabolism is oftentimes very different than what we think in our brain stress is. Because we tend to think stress is this emotional upset or this overwhelm or a lot of pressure being put on us. But stress to the metabolism is a lot of different things. There can be heat stress. There can be caloric stress. You know, so too little energy or too much energy, too much food or too little food. Both of those are stress to the system. It could be activity stress, too much activity, too little activity. Both of those are stress to the system. It could be sleep stress, right? Sleep deprivation. It, can be, it could also be emotional stress, obviously. Could be toxic stress, you know, from toxins in our environment. And so the metabolism is handling all of this stuff and then responding to it. So ask yourself then if it's one big stress barometer the metabolism, then how is my barometer functioning and behaving and able to recover with the amount of stress that it's under? And what are these hidden forms of stress, perhaps, that I'm subjecting it to or that uh, I have no control over? And once we understand that, that the major job of the metabolism is to get you back to balance after encountering a stress then we can start to understand why it does what it does and why it doesn't always respond to our wishes, our sort of uh, convenience concerns and our desires about weight loss and things like that. That's a really good analogy. I've not heard it explained like that before. So I'm glad that you simplified it and made it easy to understand because all of these terms, they can be very sciencey and people don't actually understand what it means and that's why they can get confused and you mentioned about calories excess or too much how much of weight management is due to calories so there's the side of the camp where 
calories don't matter as long as you're getting nutrients you're eating nice real whole foods you can eat as much as you want and your body will regulate and then there's the camp who believe that it's all due to calories so if you're not losing weight it's because you're eating too much you're not working out enough so could you give us your opinion on that yeah, you know, Vivian, I, I find we humans are funny creatures, right? We love to dichotomize and dramatize, right? So this is what we do. And we do it naturally all the time. And I do it and you do it and we all do it. However, when we dichotomize and dramatize with the metabolism, we're doing it a disservice because it's not one or the other. It's not black and white. It's both. Both quantity and quality of food matter. Both calories and hormones matter. Uh, And they both matter a lot. And to be honest, it depends on the individual which approach to take. For example, for many, many people, if we simply take a look at what they're eating, let's say, and we say, you know what, let's increase the amount of fiber and lean proteins in your diet and greens and the quality of your food. Oftentimes, but not always, they will naturally achieve a low calorie state accidentally, simply because these foods fill them up and are very nutritive and their metabolism goes, oh, this is what I need. That happens sometimes, but other times it doesn't happen. There are plenty of healthy foods, rich in fiber, rich in protein, adequate in fat that can be overeaten and cause issues. And for those people, we have to look back to quantity. So I see these as completely the same thing. They are inseparable. They are synergists. You need both to attain quantity and quality, and that's gonna differ between each person. Here's the thing for fat loss, and I use that term very carefully, not just weight loss, but fat loss, meaning preferentially holding onto our muscle and burning up our adipose tissue, our fat tissue. You need two things. Two things are absolutely required in my mind. One is you absolutely definitely need an energy deficit. You need to have a caloric deficit. You also need to attain hormonal metabolic balance. I'll explain that term in a minute because I don't like using big terms like that without explaining it. We all know what calories mean. We all know that eating less food in general means typically we're going to decrease the calories. And that could be any food, whether we're talking about donuts or whether we're talking about broccoli, right? You're not going to do yourself any favors by over-consuming food and then dropping extra um, you know, uh, cauliflower or broccoli into the mix. And that point Cauliflower and broccoli are not going to be healthy foods because you've already overeaten, right? So you have to um, sort of uh, pay attention to that. But on the other side of things, when we talk about the hormonal piece, we oftentimes go, well, what exactly do you mean, Jade, by hormonal metabolic balance? Well, remember, the, the, the metabolism is a stress barometer. And so when it is overly stressed out, it will send signals, just like a thermostat or a barometer would if the pressure started building up too much alarm bells might start sounding, right? Well, what are those signals? How do you know when you're in metabolic hormonal balance or out of metabolic hormonal balance? I use a funny little acronym called SHMEC, right? It's funny because when your SHMEC is in check, your metabolism is balanced. Now, I'll explain what SHMEC is. It's an acronym, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings, S-H-M-E-C. When your SHMEC is in check, your metabolism and hormonal system is in balance. Here's the interesting thing about that. Sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings are all sensations that are influenced by, either directly influenced by or indirectly, hormones. So these are all biofeedback sensations of our hormones. And so if Schmeck is out of check, 
you know that your hormonal metabolic balance is off. If Schmeck is in check, you could be relatively sure that it is balanced and your hormonal system is doing what it needs to do to help you burn fat. So on the one hand, we need a low calorie state. And on the other hand, we need Schmeck in check. We need both of these things. And not to confuse people, and I hope you don't mind, Vivian, but let me just go a little bit more into this idea of Schmeck because it's a, it's a funny term. And it also is a catch-all phrase for all biofeedback in the body. Okay, now we're, I think, focusing primarily on women. So sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings are some of the most important. But in women, there's two others that are even more important than those to sort of balance your metabolism or to understand how stressed out or how relaxed your metabolism is. And that is menses and libido. Because think about this for a second. Women are the gender of childbearing and rearing. And so their stress barometer needs to be a little bit more tuned and sensitive compared to a man's. And so if their menses is off and or their libido is gone, that is essentially the metabolism saying, I'm sorry, but I'm too stressed to worry about reproduction. So not only sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings, but also menses and libido, also exercise performance and exercise recovery, and also things like digestion and signs and symptoms of disease. For, for example, joint pain or headaches, or if you have an existing condition like an autoimmune condition, when that goes out of check, that's another indication that your hormonal metabolic balance is off. So this is a long-winded way of saying quantity and quality both matter. In order to burn fat, you need Schmeck in check and you need a low-calorie state. Now, here is the trick that goes to your question. How do we know which one is most important? Well, almost always, for most people, if you just cut calories indiscriminately, what is going to happen to Schmeck? What's going to happen to sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings? Typically, eventually, or right away, it's going to go out of check, which causes yo-yo weight regain because you can't control your hunger. You can't win a battle of willpower against your metabolism. And so what I would say for most people, not all, but for most, getting Schmeck in check first by adjusting the amount of exercise, quantity, and quality, and the food that you're eating. Once you get Schmeck in check, now you're working from a place of strength. Now you can start to push the calories downward without throwing your hormonal metabolic system out of balance, without chasing the willpower challenge and tail of this and you're going to get better results doing it that way so hopefully now you all listening to this have a way of saying is my metabolism and my hormones functioning appropriately or not am i also achieving a calorie deficit and it doesn't really matter by the way which direction you come from vivian if you want to if you're someone who goes you know what jade i'm a math type person i like to count i like to track i want to look at calories and macronutrients. You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to be like, perfect. Do that. But also then make sure that when you do that, that you're also watching Schmeck and, hormone, and your hormonal state. Now, if you're someone who says, you know what, Jade, I don't like to count. I don't want to count calories and macronutrients. I don't want to be on my fitness pal all day. I want to do this more intuitively. What I'm going to say to you is good, perfect. Then get Schmeck in check and then use your fat loss results to determine whether you need to cut calories. So we just go back and forth. They're both used as uh, you know, sort of 
feedback check systems for each other. And instead, people are seeing them as completely opposite. What I'm saying is they both work. Start wherever you want. Use the other one to check your progress and then adjust. And that's what this is all about. Does that make sense? And sorry, I just went on this big, long diatribe, but hopefully that helps sort of uh, put things in perspective a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that explanation. Um, you covered the majority of the questions that I wanted to ask in such a good way, but I do have more questions. So right. if someone is the more of a tracker, they love to count calories and macros, is there a place that's like number wise, a good place for them to start? And is there a number, both calories and maybe carbohydrates that you wouldn't ever drop under? Yeah, this is a fantastic question, right? Because the human brain, we want we want stability and certainty, right? So mine and your clients are going to be like, Vivian, Jade, tell us exactly what to do, right? Aren't <laughs> That's they? what I'm thinking. My clients, I can hear yeah. them already and they they're want like, me to ask you. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, that's all well and good, Jade. It sounds interesting, but what, now what do I do, right? Yeah. This is tough because, uh, and I will give you an answer, but before I give you an answer, we, I have to um, fix some of the, the uh, issues around this. The issue is this, that the metabolism is ever-changing. It is adaptable and, re and reactive to everything you do. So think about this. If I give you a calorie level, a macro target, and a food list to follow, and a plan, what you think, and not you, Vivian, but what most people think is they think, oh, I just follow this. Vivian said so. Jade said so. Guru XYZ said so. And so all I have to do is follow this, and I'll get great results. And here's what happens. The metabolism is a stress barometer. So it sees what you're doing and then it begins to adjust and adapt. So anything, think about this for a minute. If the metabolism is an adaptable, adjustable system and you do the same thing day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, what do you think happens in an adaptable system? It is already adapted. So there's no wonder that you'll hit a plateau and that your, all your progress will reverse. Because the whole idea here is that you do not want to do the same thing over and over again and again. This is the major reason people fail. There's nothing so much wrong with the eat less, exercise more model, except that people do it over and over and over again. And it's the only tool that they have. That's where they go wrong. So if I give you calories to shoot for and macros to shoot for and a, a food list, it's dangerous because when Vivian and I do that for you all, what ends up happening is you can get stuck and wrongly think that somehow that's all you need to do. No, that's the beginning of the process because once we give you those calories and those macros and that food list, your metabolism is then going to respond. Sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings, exercise, performance, exercise, recovery, menses, libido, all these things are going to tell you whether you're on the right track and then you are going to need to adjust calories maybe need to go up or calories maybe need to go down. Maybe you need to adjust your macronutrient ratios. And so I'm going to tell you where I would start, but I went through that whole thing because I want to tell you the biggest problem people have with this is they think that if you, they get a plan, all they're supposed to do is follow that plan. And I'm telling you, that plan is not going to work much past two to four weeks. And then you're going to need to change it. So for most people, I would say a good starting place is going to be simply take your body weight. And I know, um, I, I know it's a little different because we speak in pounds. Do you guys speak in pounds in the UK? No, we have stones yeah. typically or yeah. kilograms. Yeah, so you guys do stones or kilograms. And so I'm going to give you for pounds. I, I, I apologize about that, but you can easily do this conversion yeah. online. 
So basically what I tend to do is first, all of you listening in the United States, use the regular pound. All of you listening elsewhere, convert pounds into kilograms. Take your body weight in pounds and multiply that times 10, okay? Now, so I'm, I'm 225 pounds, so that's 2,250 calories. That is a good place to start in my mind for fat loss. It can be a little bit extreme even, but that's okay because my metabolism will tell me if it's extreme because my schmeck will go out of check and then I can adjust. But I would start with 10 times your body weight in pounds. And I would also start for most people with a macronutrient ratio that favors protein because protein is the most satiating of all the macronutrients. It keeps you full and full for a long period of time. And we all know that one of the biggest things that keeps us from being able to adhere lifestyle-wise to a dietary change is that we get hungry and have cravings. So I would set my macronutrient ratio to somewhere around 30, 40, 30, 30% carbohydrates, 40% protein, and 30% fat. Now, this is just a general rule. And let's keep in mind, general rules are a bad idea for humans because we're all so different. So long as you understand that this is a starting place, not the ending place, then it can be useful. So 10 times your body weight in pounds, a 30, 40, 30 macronutrient ratio on the diet, and then you begin to live your life. And that includes whatever exercise pattern you're doing, keep doing it. This should, for many people, begin to help them lose weight, right? Now, if your schmeck goes out of check, and when, I should say, your schmeck goes out of check, which it will, then you adjust things. So when you start with this 10 times your body weight in pounds and this 30, 40, 30 macronutrient ratio, now every week, at the end of the week and every day, you should be thinking, did that breakfast or that lunch or that dinner or me skipping that meal keep my schmeck in check or not in check? And then you adjust your macronutrient ratios. But at the end of the week, you will take your body fat percent. I suggest you just get on a scale and also do a waist measurement in centimeters or inches, right? And if your waist measurement is going down, even if your body weight is staying the same, it's a good indication that you're losing fat, right? So the goal is every week, are you losing some fat? And is your schmeck in check? If it is, then this, this uh, sort of generalization I gave you is working. It won't work forever. So when it stops working, that's when it's time to change. Maybe you have to go down in calories a little bit, or maybe you need to go up in calories a little bit. By the way, how, how would you guess that maybe? Well, if you're someone who's exercising a ton, then you probably want to, to keep, remember the metabolism is a stress barometer. This isn't, ca this isn't calculator math. It's just, if the calorie gap is this big, right? And for those of you who are listening and not watching on YouTube, I just have this large spread between my hands. If it's this big, that stresses out the metabolism. This is an eat less, exercise more approach or an eat more, exercise less approach. This is stressful to the metabolism. What we want to do is we want to narrow that gap. That's less stressful to the metabolism, that less of a calorie gap. So I would call this maybe eating more and exercising more if you're someone who likes to work out a ton or eating less and exercising less if you're someone who does not. What we want to avoid are these big, large extremes and eat less, exercise more, and eat more, exercise less for long periods of time. And so if Schmeck goes out of check and you're exercising a lot, you might want to bump that 10 times body weight up a little bit and maybe move your macronutrients from 30, 40, 30 to 40, 30, 30, a little bit more carbs to fuel that exercise. 
At the same time, if you're someone who's not doing much exercise at all, you might actually find that you have to go down lower in carbohydrates. So maybe you have to move to maybe a 20, a 20% carbohydrate diet and lower calories to get the results you want. And by the way, I'll say this, Vivian, in the end, our metabolism does not care uh, what our convenience level is with this. It does not care. You know, I've heard things where people say, well, I've heard that if you go below 1,000 calories, your metabolism is going to explode or something. No, no, it won't. Some people do have to go pretty low in calories to get the results they want to get. Some people have to go higher in calories. And as frustrating as this is, if Vivian and I give you a starting place to go, you're going to have to adjust and figure out how this works. Now, I'll stop there just to see what you have to add to this, Vivian. But I, will, I have one more thing where I want to go. So just remind me, how do we keep the plateaus from stopping? It really is about intermittent energy restriction. So you do not want to go super low and stay there. You want to come back to balance. So we could talk a little bit about that in just a minute. But I just wanted to stop it and see you know, if you want to add anything or you know, correct me on anything or anything like that. Yeah, so I think people have always heard with exercise, it's good to switch it up. So don't just do the same routine for weeks and weeks on end. It's good to switch things up. But then we're taught with diet and nutrition that our body likes regular meals. It likes the same things, the same times every single day, the same amount of calories. And if you maybe don't eat one day, then that sends your body into starvation mode and it stresses your body. And then the next meal, your body holds on to the fuel because it's it's not sure when the next meal is going to be so is that just completely a myth starvation mode is not a myth you know and met, you know these, so these things you talk about starvation mode or metabolic damage and all these kinds of things the problem is that we we tend to see these as a bad thing and actually this is just what the metabolism does naturally it, it comes from a reality of feast and famine so your metabolism evolved over you know hundreds of thousands of years in a reality that food was not guaranteed. And so, yes, it does hold on to body fat, especially when it feels like it's under stress. And here's why seeing the metabolism as a stress barometer is so important now, because once you understand that, then you go, well, isn't that interesting? So any type of stress to the metabolism seems like a starvation response, because that's the stress that it saw more than anything else in its evolution. So you have to be very careful about stress. And then you start to understand that eat more, exercise less, and eat less, exercise more are both stressful to the system. Isn't it interesting that someone who is what we call in America a couch potato, basically it just means like a potato sitting on a couch, doing nothing, eating chips and never moving, an eat more, exercise less person has their schmeck out of check, do they not? They don't sleep well. They tend, they tend to be hungry all the time. They're always getting cravings. Their mood is jumping all over the place. Their energy is uh, low or unpredictable and unstable. Well, guess what? The dieter, the eat less, exercise more person, often is suffering from the exact same symptoms. Sleep fragmentation, hungry all the time, cravings, energy that is unpredictable and unstable, partly because of this energy gap being way too wide. That is not a thing that the metabolism wants to be dealing with for too long. It will start to see it as a stress, and it will start to see both extremes as a starvation response. For those of you who are a little bit more savvy, on the eat more, exercise less, uh, the science behind that is leptin resistance kicks in. We just eat and eat and eat and eat. Well, leptin is a hormone that tells us how much body fat we have on, and when it grows too much in an eat more, exercise less state, 
the brain starts shutting off to it. It's like the, the hormone that cried wolf, so to speak, right? So it just says, I'm not listening to you anymore. And it ends up thinking it's starving on either extreme. And so to counteract starvation response, what you then do is narrow that gap. Do what Vivian and I are talking about right now. Move to an eat more, exercise more approach or an eat less, exercise less approach for the vast majority of the time. And then every once in a while, you can come back to an eat more, exercise less or an eat less, exercise more state and it won't be problematic for you. But hopefully that sort of explains that. I think what we need to be careful of is we shouldn't get um, you know, caught up into the hype you know, remember I said we, we like to be dramatists as humans. We're always like looking for the, the drama of this. It's just the metabolism doing what it's doing. So you don't need to be scared of it. It's not metabolic damage in, in the sense that you'll never be able to recover from it. It's, it's damage in the sense that you are not doing what's right for your metabolism to free up its fat stores if you're pushing it into this stressed out state. Interesting. And D... The- these days, intermittent fasting is a huge trend. And mm-hmm. there's, there's, again, the side of people who think that it's the answer to everything, longevity, anti-cancer prevention, and the other side who think that it's the worst thing ever, it's too stressful on the body. Women in particular shouldn't go anywhere near it. Mm-hmm. Again, is it very bio-individual in your opinion, or could you go more into the difference, differences with male and female bodies like we touched on at the start? Yeah. And the answer, again, if you've, if you've gathered here, is both. It, can, it is both. You know, so intermittent fasting, keto diets, all those kinds of things can be fantastic. And when overdone and in certain individuals can be a disaster. By the way, how do you know? Well, you know is if you do intermittent fasting, let's say that Vivian and I both decide that we're going to fast for 24 hours tomorrow, right? And Vivian fasts for 24 hours. And when she gets to dinner, she feels stable energy stable, not really hungry and craving too much and sits down and has a salad and some fish and a little bit of potato and some vegetables and then doesn't need dessert or a bunch of wine or anything like that and goes to bed. Then for her, that worked fantastic because she was able to keep her schmeck in check and create a low calorie state. However, what if I do this 24 hour fast and by the time I eat, I am so ravenous that I not only eat dinner, but then eat a second dinner and then go and get ice cream and then go and drink a bunch of booze. And then the next day wake up and I'm continuing to crave these highly palatable foods. In that case, fasting caused my schmeck to go out of check and it's the, it's not a good thing for me. So can you see how in two different people, the exact same intervention can be highly beneficial for Vivian creating those two things we talked about a low calorie state with hormonal metabolic balance and in the other person, it creates hormonal metabolic balance that is out of check and therefore a very high caloric intake in a short period of time, which is not a good thing. So we all know if it's working for us or not. And instead of listening to Jade Tita or other people on this, you have to become your own metabolic detective. Now, here's the thing to know about women. Women, again, are the gender of childbearing and rearing. This does make their um, system a little bit more stress reactive, so to speak. As a matter of fact, just this morning I was reading research, I just posted it on my Instagram feed. So uh, if you wanna go to my Instagram feed and check this out, on my Instagram feed, uh, it was talking about women who cut calories, even moderately over a long period of time, began to see 
luteal phase defects, even healthy women. And what a luteal phase defect means is just that ovulation is less likely to happen and the luteal phase, the, the tail end of the menstrual cycle shortens. That's not a great thing if you want to be very fertile as a woman. That can lead to lots of different problems in fertility and things like that. So isn't that interesting in women that is going on with just a moderate cut in calories? And so the metabolism is smart and it's saying, oh, she's cutting calories back and therefore I better be careful about the fact that having fuel for a potential child, maybe I don't want to get pregnant and you start to see those changes. And so, yes, I would say that intermittent fasting and things like that might be more of a slippery slope for women. However, I think that I have seen just as many women thrive and do fantastic on that regime as I have seen women crash and burn. So it's simply a matter of, of looking at yourself and saying, how do I do? Does intermittent fasting keep my schmeck in check and keep my calories low? Or does it cause me to um, you know, want to binge eat like crazy and keep my calories high? This is um, you know, what each and every woman needs to be looking at. Each and every man does as well. But once you start approaching this from a more rational point of view and a less dramatist point of view, you start to be able to just clear through the clutter and start listening to your own metabolic signals instead of reading you know, the latest book or listening to the latest podcast or reading the latest blog and then running off and thinking that intermittent fasting is going to solve or keto diet is going to solve all your woes. It's funny, right, Vivian? I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 45. I've been around. I was a child of the 80s. I remember the low fat craze. I remember the zone diet. I remember like I mean, we've been through, I remember the first keto craze. I think actually I've been through three keto crazes <laughs> in my life already. This is the latest one. Um, back in the late 90s, me and my brother were into intermittent fasting then. I was doing intermittent fasting then. Now it's come around again. And it's always been the same. These tools work wonderfully for some people and cause other people to crash and burn. And that's because we have to understand what is what related to our individual makeup. We're each uniquely metabolically different psychologically different and different in our personal preferences and we have to honor that i've definitely seen the the diet trends recycle it's like fashion as well like 10 years later five years later something will come around again um so i've seen that as well and i'm only 25 so i can expect as the years go on we're going to see these things all over again and that's to be expected yep. um so let's talk more about exercise and for women specifically, around the menstrual cycle, is there an optimal time to do specific workouts or like syncing your, your workouts with your menstrual cycle? Or can they just go with the same thing um, throughout the month? Well, the first thing to say is they can absolutely go and do the same thing throughout the month, right? So again, what happens is once I tell you the science behind training with your cycle, what a lot of women will do is be like, oh my God, that's what mm -hmm. I'm gonna do. And then women get upset because they go, well, but I'm not menstruating or I'm on mm. the pill or I'm menopausal. Yeah. And the, the truth is, this is just, this is something that women can do. I'm not saying it's something women sh should do. Women can train exactly like men and get fantastic results. It's just that they also can train differently and use their hormonal metabolic advantages to perhaps get better results for some women. But some women actually do better training like a man. So we, again, this comes down to individual women. Before I get into that, though, I want to make I want to say one more thing about intermittent fasting and especially intermittent um, energy restriction, which is a little bit different than fasting. This is just something I want to clear up when you start sort of this beginning sort of thing that we talked about 10 times your body weight and the macronutrients. What you really want to do is 
don't think necessarily intermittent fasting, but think intermittent energy restriction. And what that means is take some time, one to two weeks in this energy restricted, 10 times your body weight sort of state. And then come back to a normal caloric, not excess calories, by the way, just a normal caloric diet for yourself for one to two weeks to reset. Then repeat. Instead of doing what most people do, which is just, I'm going to do eight weeks and try to do eight months and try to do the rest of my life in this eat less, exercise more state. That does not work, period. What works much better, not perfectly, by the way, according to research, so in time we'll figure this out better, but what works better than that is Go into calorie deficit for a period of time, come out of it. Go back, come out of it. Go back, come out of it. The reason I'm going through this right now is because think about it, two weeks on, two weeks off, that also corresponds with the female menstrual cycle. So you, not only can you train differently with your menstrual cycle, you can eat differently with your menstrual cycle. So that is one of the key things to keep your results coming. Just use this two weeks on, two weeks off cycle. And for those of you who are research nerds and you want to know where this is coming from, there was a really cool study published at the beginning or the end of last year called the Matador study that showed that this was the most beneficial way to do this. Now, we need more studies on this, but what a lot of us who look at this research have been doing this for a long time, and we were just happy to see a study that corroborated what we had been doing clinically. So those of you who want to look up that, you can look up the Matador study, M-A-T-A-D-O-R. Just search it on Google and you can read a little bit about it. I have it on my website and did a podcast on it on my podcast as well. So go and look at that information. Now, the, the menstrual cycle. Um, if it's okay with you, Vivian, what I'll do is just briefly go through the science behind yeah. the female hormones. Yeah. And I'll definitely. try to make this uh, easy for you. So imagine estrogen and progesterone as... Um, the best way I can describe this is two twin sisters, okay? They're twin sisters, but they're not identical sisters, but they are twins. And one sister, estrogen, is um, sort of very rambunctious and adventurous, and um, she's just all about let's live life, let's go out there and charge, and she's kind of strong and resilient, right? So estrogen is that sister. Now, progesterone, that sister, is kind of a check on estrogen. She's a little bit more worried, a little bit more anxious, a little bit more feeling like estrogen's going to get herself in trouble. And she's a little bit more stress reactive and a little bit more sensitive to, to life, right? So you have these two different sort of sisters. Now in the first half of the cycle, what they call the follicular phase, once women start to bleed, estrogen starts to rise. And progesterone's kind of still taking a nap. It's very, very low. It's not around at this time. So this sister gets to play by herself in a sense. And estrogen is very, very um, resilient. And so when estrogen is around the first two weeks of the menstrual cycle, women can eat more, they can tolerate more carbohydrates, they can train harder, they, you know, they can sort of have more fun with life a little bit. So when they're in calorie deficit, they tend to burn more fat and less muscle. And when they're in calorie excess, when estrogen is around, they tend to build more muscle and, and less fat. So estrogen is a great thing for a woman to have. But then right in the middle of the cycle, you have ovulation. And with ovulation comes the formation of the corpus luteum, which, is, um, which becomes the uh, source of progesterone. So at the second half of the cycle, all of a sudden now progesterone comes in and starts playing with estrogen. Now they're both around, but progesterone's dominating a little bit. She's a little bit more worried. She wants estrogen to calm down. She wants everything to be a little bit more subtle. She also makes you a little bit more insulin resistant, right? 
and a little more stress reactive. Now this makes sense when you think about how smart the metabolism is. Think about it like this. If you are looking to reproduce, which is the goal of the metabolism, then when estrogen is around in the first two weeks, it's about building up tissue, right? It's about let's build up, let's get strong, right? And then the second half of the menstrual cycle after ovulation, then the body's sort of like, hey, we might have another entity, another baby, a baby coming along. So let's save some fuel for the baby, which is why progesterone makes the female metabolism a little bit more insulin resistant at that time, right? So does that make sense how that works and how these two sisters sort of interact? So now what you can do is you can say, okay, if that's the case, then when I am in an estrogen sister time, I can train hard and eat hard. I can do eat more, exercise more type of things. Lots of heavy training, lots of heavy output, lots of running, a little bit more carbohydrates, a little bit more food in general. But when progesterone is dominating, what we want to do is we want to take care of her and, and let her be relaxed and listen to her wisdom a little bit and essentially go, okay, maybe now I want to cut down on the training a little bit. Not altogether, but just don't be as extreme with it. Start doing a little bit more relaxing type stuff, meditative type stuff, yoga, tai chi, spa therapies, extra sleep, and also cut down on the calories and carbohydrates because the body can't tolerate them as much at this point in time. And then you can repeat it the next month and go back and forth like this. Now, by the way, if you're on birth control pills, don't worry. You may not get the same benefit because the birth control keeps a static dose of these hormones all a month long, but you'll still benefit from this cyclic approach, right? You'll still benefit. If you're menopausal, you'll still benefit. But for you, the, you, you women who are actually menstruating still, you can benefit potentially even more. Now, here's the thing. If this is too stressful to worry about and it's going to cause extra stress and going back and forth, you can absolutely benefit and will benefit from just a stable, steady diet, right? But think about what we said. The metabolism is adaptable and reactive. So this works with that Matador study, and it also works with your natural female hormonal fluctuations. So it's a very beautiful way to do it. And there's one more thing that happens right around menses. At menses, estrogen and progesterone fall off dramatically. So at this point, women enter, for lack of a better term, a mini menopause. So what women don't oftentimes understand is they pretty much go through menopause every month, right? When estrogen and progesterone fall at the end of the month. Now remember, estrogen and progesterone have receptors all over the body, in the brain too. So when estrogen and progesterone fall, you see serotonin levels change, dopamine levels change, GABA levels change, these, these brain chemicals that determine mood and cravings and things like that. And so this is why at menses, oftentimes women will see increases in cravings and uh, emotional lability and all of these kinds of things. And so what can you do to help deal with that? Well, one thing you could do is just remember, listen to progesterone, take your time, be a little bit more relaxed during that time. And also you can use certain herbs. One of my favorites, by the way, is cocoa. Cocoa has preformed serotonin in it. It has anandamide in it, which is a, a natural cannabinoid that relaxes us. Um, some people call it chemical bliss. It can raise dopamine levels and uh, make us a little bit more focused and more resilient to stress. So cocoa powder in water uh, is a great thing I've done with uh, lots of my female clients over the years. Curcumin is a really good one because it helps the hypothalamus, the area of the brain that registers stress, be a little less reactive to it. And there's lots of different herbs and things that we can do for uh, you know, our, our female clients and patients at menses. 
but you, but hopefully you can now see how your training schedule and your eating schedule and even your supplemental regime can change based on the menstrual cycle. Just don't do what all humans do and go, well, I'm doing it all wrong if I'm not doing it with my menstrual cycle. That's not true. It's just that this is one additional thing for those of you who are savvy, for who it doesn't stress out, and for who you understand it, to try. And I think it works very, very well. So hopefully that makes sense. But I don't know if you have any questions around that. Yeah, I think people are wondering, are you talking about chocolate? Are you giving women permission to have as much chocolate as they want? Or again, is there a limit with what we should, what types of chocolate and how much we should be focusing on? Yeah, I mean, so it's a really interesting thing, right? So we have cacao, we have cocoa, and we have chocolate, right? So let's just go through that really quickly. So cacao is sort of the raw, the raw bean, right? So they basically take this, this cacao bean and they, uh, the raw cacao, you kind of chop up and you eat it raw. Believe it or not, a lot of people love, you know, we, we're funny, we humans, we think, oh, it's organic, it's raw, it's, that, that's probably the best. But there's some indication uh, that possibly cocoa, where you powder the cacao bean and then, or roast the cacao bean and then powder it, makes some of those bioactive compounds a little bit more available to the body and the brain. Now, when you take that cacao or that cocoa powder, mix it with cocoa butter, that's a different part of the plant, that's the fat part of the plant, and then add sugar to it. Now we're talking about chocolate. So those are three different things. So what I'm talking about for women is I'm talking about the cocoa, the cocoa powder, because uh, chocolate, right, can just be a little bit too much. It can hit those, ping those high, those hedonistic centers in the brain and want you to crave more and more and more. And that will happen the more you go from sort of those dark, bitter chocolates to those very sweet milk chocolates. So if you're gonna do chocolate and you want some of the fat, nothing wrong with that so long as it doesn't throw schmeck out of check. One of the things that I think every woman and every man and every person who's trying to you know, live this lifestyle needs to understand is their buffer foods and their trigger foods. Uh, I'll go through that really quickly because it's absolutely critical. A buffer food to me is a food, regardless of how, what people tell you about its health benefits, healthy or unhealthy, it helps you eat better. For example, I know people who do things like eat Oreos or eat little Hershey's Kisses or Cadbury eggs and little, little chocolates that they'll do a little bit of that. And as a result of doing that, they end up being able to eat better. I know people who have wine with dinner and as a result of having one glass of wine, don't get dessert and drink more wine or have a bunch of or overeat at dinner. I also know people that if they have those chocolates, uh, the Cadbury, the Hershey Kisses, the Oreos, they end up going on a absolute crazy food binge as a result of doing that. I also know people who, who do alcohol and end up going on a food binge. So in one case, one person's buffer food could be another person's trigger food. So we need to know what are our buffer foods. For some women, a nice piece of dark chocolate with a little bit of sugar, bitter chocolate can be great. For some women, actually, they can actually get away with milk chocolate. They don't overeat it. How do you know if it's a buffer food or a trigger food? If it sends Schmeck out of check, <laughs> then it's a trigger food. If it keeps Schmeck in check, then it's a buffer food. And this is regardless of what you think about how healthy the food is. I don't care if it's cotton candy. If it keeps Schmeck in check and helps you eat better overall, then I would see that as a health food. And this is heresy to many people in this field because they think, well, you have to be perfect. And what I'm saying is perfect oftentimes becomes the enemy of good. We've all heard that statement. Oftentimes what we want to be doing is we want to be really paying close attention to our personal preferences and personal preferences matter a lot. And so we want to include some foods that we can enjoy. 
And some of those foods on the surface, if they were isolated, are not healthy foods, right? I also know people like this, Vivian, and maybe you do too. I know people that when they try to eat nothing but salads, as a result of eating those salads, they end up craving cheesecake and chocolate cake and pie later. And so I would say, okay, ease up on the salads a little bit and make sure we put in some good, healthy foods. Here's how to make sense of this, by the way. Um, think about this. 90% of your meals should be in the form of soups, salads, scrambles, shakes, and stir fries. Soups, salads, scrambles, shakes, and stir fries. These are foods that are rich in water, rich in protein, rich in fiber, and they should be relatively low in carbohydrate and fat. Not because there's anything wrong with carbohydrate and fat, by the way. It's just that soup, salad, scramble shakes, and stir fries give you a very high satiating potential. They shut hunger down with very little calories. Once you get that down, 90%, then you can add in enough sugar, salt, starch, fat, alcohol to make your meals enjoyable. And when you add that stuff in, what you're really adding in is buffer foods, right? You're really adding in. You want to make sure when you add the, the starch and the fat and the salt and the sugar and the alcohol that you're doing it with an eye towards buffering your diet, not triggering your diet. Because we all know what it's like when you do a refeed or a cheat meal. And as a result of doing that, you end up overeating. So a one cheat meal becomes a cheat month. We don't want that. That's a trigger food sensation. What we want is 90% of our foods is soup, salad, scramble shakes, and stir fries. And then we want to add enough of these buffer materials to make our food enjoyable. Yeah, I've had plenty of clients go through um, either of those extremes, like they're easily triggered and they just fall off the wagon quotes when they have the smallest thing. And with cravings, are there any indications that our cravings can tell us? So some people say like, Craving chocolate can indicate magnesium deficiency. Craving salts can indicate adrenal issues. Are there any, any um, pills of wisdom that you want to share on that aspect? Yeah, there's absolutely no, uh, no evidence whatsoever in the scientific community that your cravings tell you about micronutrient deficiencies. So I see that as a, a kind of a ridiculous concept. And, I'll, and, and think about it this way, right? You don't crave chocolate because you need magnesium. If you were needing magnesium, you'd crave chalk or something. You crave chocolate because it has fat and sugar in it. It has these highly palatable things that your body goes, I want extra calories, especially because I feel like I'm in a stressful situation and I'm going into that starvation response. However, there is some indication that potentially you can make an argument for the fact that salt, for example, helps to regulate blood pressure. Um, some people have blood sugar regulation issues that are jumping all over the place. So if you're constantly craving sugar or salt, it may indicate that you have some blood pressure or blood sugar issues. And we use that clinically when we take people's cases to be like, maybe there's some adrenal stuff going on. Maybe there's some blood pressure. Maybe there's some diabetes going on. That is more feasible. But the idea that you're craving chocolate because you need magnesium, Honestly, you know, one of the richest sources pound for pound of magnesium is greens. So if we are really craving things because they had magnesium in it, we would be having premenstrual green cravings for salads and stuff. We don't. We're craving the fat and the sugar that comes along with it. So that argument is something that I think everyone should, should, should throw out at mm -hmm. this point. There's no evidence there and it doesn't make sense even. It may just be that people want to feel like they're doing a good thing, like premenstrually now that they know that the cocoa's a really good option beforehand they could be like oh it's i need magnesium so i'm just going to eat this whole 
massive bar of chocolate, but no, we know that that's not the case. Yeah. And, and if you really want, if you're just like, Jade, I don't know if I believe you, then try this. And, and I, I know many people have done this. Try taking a, a, a bucket load of magnesium supplements around menses and see, does that shut off your chocolate cravings? I doubt it's going to. Good idea. And on the subject of fat storage, so different parts of our body, we can store fat due to different imbalances. Can you just cover for women the classic like apple shape, pear shape, and what these can indicate as well? Yeah. So it's really interesting, right? So we hear the, all the different shapes, apple shape, fat storage around the middle. Um, these women tend to, in, uh, tend to be, research has shown, and this is actually really interesting because uh, there's some interesting research on women who have low BMIs, so they're, they're relatively thin, but have high waist to hip ratios, which means they store a lot of their, their uh, fat in their midsection. Now, you have to see this to understand sort of what I'm getting at. Imagine a, a thin woman with a pot belly sort of. And, you, and some women know this if they have this. Uh, this is an indication that they are overly stress reactive and perhaps uh, have too much cortisol and other hormones going on in their body. So these women want to pay attention to that. Also, you can have more pear-shaped women. These women tend to perhaps be uh, dealing with more estrogen-related uh, issues. But these kind of things are probably more genetic than anything than hormonal-related. And not only that, there's not much you can do, at least with estrogen stuff, you know, for women. And if that was the case, of course, at menopause, when estrogen, you know, went away, you would see a shift more from, you know, sort of this pear shape to a more apple shaped body, which you do. So we know that these hormones are playing a bit of a role here, but the healthiest uh, body shape for women and actually the one that people interested sexually in women, romantically in women is the hourglass shape. As a matter of fact, in attraction research. This is really interesting because when a woman looks at her own body, when another woman who's not romantically interested in that woman looks at her body, and when a man or anyone who's romantically interested in a woman looks at her body, what they see when they track their eyes, because they'll use computer software and everything else, they'll see that what happens is the eyes go right to the midsect or right to the waist, then the hips and the bust. And so you're essentially looking at this hourglass shape. This is the most attractive uh, body on a woman, according to her own judgment of herself, right? According to others, other women's judgment of her and according to romantic people who are romantically interested in her. It also happens to be the healthiest body shape. It's basically an indication of a woman's uh, reproductive potential. And so this is how women are evaluating their own bodies, how women are evaluating other women's bodies, and how men are evaluating women's bodies. And so Ultimately, when you are losing fat, what you really want to be doing now, every woman's different, right? So they have different, um, you know, hourglass potentials. So if you took like the quintessential Playboy centerfold model, they're basically 0.7 uh, waist to chest and 0.7 waist to hip ratio, right? That perfect 0.7, 0.7. What does this mean for your average woman? What it means is that typically, we already covered this. What it means is that anything you can do that is making your hourglass more accentuated, which is usually gonna be what? Simply the waist shrinking, right? Because you're not gonna be able to do much with the, the hips and the bust, right? Um, although you could make an argument, right, with breast implants and things like that, that it would be nice if plastic surgeons actually took this into account instead of going you know, as big as a woman wanted, or they would basically say, well, let's make you the perfect hourglass shape. This is, would be an indication to do this. But ultimately for you women who are looking at, am I 
you know, getting the optimal body shape change, you really should be focusing mainly on your waist, right? That's the area that is going to really determine this hourglass shape. Now, what hormones are most responsible for that? Estrogen and progesterone, those two sisters work together to counteract insulin and cortisol's effects at the midsection. So this is why around menopause, when estrogen and progesterone go away, we have to be extra careful now to begin to watch our, more of our quantity argument, right? So in the, in the beginning, it might have been a more of a quality argument when women were younger. They could just clean up their diet a little bit and, you know, um, you know eat more vegetables and soup, salad, scramble shakes and stir fries and get the results they want. When a woman loses estrogen and progesterone, she might have to be extra careful, especially in regards to carbohydrate intake. Um, one interesting study uh, earlier in the year basically showed that women, as they age, take the women the same BMI, same relative distributions body-wise, and give them a, a standard dose of carbohydrate. You'll see women who are 65 have far more insulin release, far more cortisol excursions, and far more hormonal perturbations compared to younger women of the same dose, just based on age. And so one of the major things a menopause a woman can do is really start to watch her carbohydrate intake a little bit. Now, I don't know how much you want to get into the science of this, but I'll mention it briefly for the nerds out there. Here's, here's how this works. Women in their subcutaneous fat, so the fat under the skin versus the visceral fat, which is the fat around the organs. Women tend to have more subcutaneous fat and they tend to have more alpha receptors compared to men. So briefly, we have two receptors that are associated with our fat cells, alpha receptors and beta receptors. Think alpha for anti-burn and beta for burn. So our fat burning hormones interact with these receptors. So what's interesting is women have more anti-burn alpha receptors in the hips, butt, thighs, and breasts than men do which is beautiful, right? And estrogen actually amplifies these receptors. This is why estrogen gives you that beautiful hourglass shape that we all love in a female. So it's a good thing. However, if you want to try to spot reduce certain areas, which is very, very difficult to do, then you probably want to pay most attention to burning those areas when estrogen is not around as much, which would be when? Towards the end of the menstrual cycle. And so spending a lot of time in that point of time in calorie deficit, right? And then coming back to normal calorie levels when estrogen is around. That's one way to attack some of these stubborn body fat zones. It's very, very difficult to do, but theoretically it works. And I've seen mild success in my clinical practice doing that with mainly fitness and figure um, contestants, which I used to work with pretty uh, a lot back 10 years ago. And what about cellulite? Is that involved in the, the uh, fat cell receptors as well? Yeah, it's, it's partly uh, involved. Cellulite, though, is more of a collagen issue. So uh, the way to think about cellulite in women is um, if you think about the collagen in uh, the fat tissue, men have a more uh, chain link fence distribution. So it's kind of like cross hatched pattern. So fat can't build up in those pockets because pretty close knit. Women have more of a picket fence distribution of collagen, these, these vertical fibers that run up and down, which can pack fluid and uh, fat into those. And so when that, it almost forms like a pocket and then can pucker up and push out into the skin. This is why some of these spa treatments can work for a very brief period of time because they push fluid out of those pockets and you can see a reduction in cellulite, but it's not a permanent effect. 
So if you really want to, you know, attack cellulite, right, what you want to do is you want to have a place where you really burn the fat, which we kind of talked about how to do that using the calorie sort of approach, using the intermittent restriction approach and the hormonal keeping schmeck in check and sleep uh, or uh, sleep hunger, mood, energy and cravings and the, the, you know, soup, salad, scramble shakes and stir fries, all that, all that comes first. You got to burn fat. So to, to lose cellulite, you first got to lose the fat. You're not going to lose it without it. Then you need to attend to those collagen fibers, which unfortunately is almost impossible to do because we don't necessarily know. This is largely genetically um, determined. However, you can get some hints about cellulite when you look around and see which people, which women tend to have much less of it. And those women tend to be the women who are pushing weights around. Because those collagen fibers are continuous with the fascia that surrounds each of our muscles. And so as muscle gets more, grows, and women don't like that term because they're like, oh, my muscle's going to grow. I don't want to look like a man. Well, you're not because you don't have testosterone. You're not going to get that big. But as your muscle gets a little bit bigger and you're burning the fat, what ends up happening is those collagen fibers tense up and get a little bit more rigid. And you'll see that the appearance of um, cellulite goes down a little bit. So if you want to see make cellulite worse, then try to just go on a crash diet without weight training. And you might actually make it worse even though you're smaller, right? If you wanna make it better, you want to start picking up weight training. Uh, cardiovascular exercise isn't gonna do it. Yoga's not going to necessarily do it. Um, weight training is gonna be the best thing to help with that. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. And by the way, this brings up the whole thing about bulking up in women. Um, one thing that drives me nuts is people say that women can't bulk up. Well, yeah, if you're gaining some muscle and you're not burning the fat, that's like putting a jacket on top of two sweaters. That is bulking up, but it's not bulking up because your muscles are getting super big. It's bulking up because your muscles are growing very slightly and you're not burning the fat. So ultimately what that tells you is that you need to pay more attention to your diet instead of exercise. Because one of the things I've learned about women Men too, but more so women. Women's, the female brain is like, well, I just got to do something. I want to do something. I want to feel like I'm making progress. So they exercise becomes the way they think they're going to burn the fat. No, exercise assures that the calories you do burn are fat rather than muscle, but it's diet that drives the fat loss. And so rather than spending an extra hour on the treadmill, most women will be far better off spending an extra hour in the kitchen prepping meals, paying attention to their calorie and macro levels. That's what burns the fat. Then the exercise part, just make sure that the weight that you do lose is indeed fat and not muscle. So I think a lot of women get that wrong. And yes, you can bulk up if you're gaining muscle under a layer of fat that you're not burning. Mm -hmm. And apart from the benefits to cellulite appearance with the strength training, what else should women, women know about the benefits of building muscle? Yeah, well, here's the interesting thing, right? We all, we're all aging, okay? All of us. All of our faces are falling off. Our bodies are, are aging. This is just the nature of being human. Now, this is much, much harder on women of the Western world. And the reason it's much, much harder on women of the Western world because us men don't have to deal with the, the crap around that. You know, it's, it's basically women are constantly judged for their physical appearance. And because they're constantly judged for their physical appearance, it is very tough on them as they age because instead of being judged for their intelligence and their kindness and their ability to take care of people and that kind of thing, they're oftentimes 
judged for their looks. And therefore, there's no escaping them also judging themselves for their looks. And so what happens is they become really uh, upset about losing sort of that young female figure. And one of the things that they try to do to combat that is exercise it off, typically the wrong way, which is running and things like that, which for some women, not all, by the way, for some women, that will help them burn muscle, which makes them less firm and a little bit more flabby. The other thing is another study a few months back that I basically read showed that about when women try to use cardiovascular exercise to lose weight, about 25% of them get a response. 50% of them get no response. And actually 25% actually gain fat as a result of the cardiovascular exercise. The reason why is because for the 25% that get the results, they don't have a compensatory eating response. For the 50% who stay the same, they compensate with food enough to offset the burn in calories. But there's then that 25% that actually gains weight because they overcompensate with food. Not only do they eat enough to, to recover the amount of calories burned through exercise, but they eat extra to put on more exercise or to put on you know more fat. And so we have to be careful of that. Weight training actually offsets both of those because when you weight train you actually keep your muscle and or gain some which maintains your metabolic uh, you know sort of processes keeps you firm and keeps your body functioning well um, and it probably doesn't for most people now for some it might and we need some more research to tell us but for most people it probably doesn't have the same compensatory eating responses that cardiovascular exercise does so if you want to maintain your metabolic potential into your old age as a woman, not to mention just remain fit because frailty is what kills, uh, not necessarily disease more than anything else. Frailty, if you get a disease and you're frail, you fall and break a hip and you're frail, you're not gonna last long. You fall and break a hip and you're strong, you're likely going to recover. So weight training is critical. I would actually say weight training is more critical for women than men, but for some reason, culturally speaking, um, it is seen as not the thing to do. And I would say if there's one thing that I could change, you know, just snap my fingers and go, I wish I could change this perspective in women. I would change the perspective that they need to be doing yoga and cardio and spin classes and step classes and all that kind of stuff and dance classes and instead be like, um, you women need to get into the weight room more critically than even men. Men would probably benefit more from that stuff because they've got the muscle mass that, you know, but you don't. And so there is some truth to the fact of doing the things to, to strengthen you. So I, hopefully that explains it. I think that is critical, Vivian. I'm glad you brought it up because it is so important. And most women simply won't do it. And I get it because they don't necessarily like it. And there's a negative connotation with it. But that is changing slowly but surely. Yeah, it is. And I think you've just inspired a lot of ladies listening to get in that weight room, build some muscle, um, and just for overall health, but specifically if they're struggling with the weight management, then it could be a really important addition to the routine. Let's finish up with just a bit on the mindset side of things as well. So you mentioned at the start, that's kind of an interest of yours too, the psychology, personal development. Just give me an overview of what you want the listeners to take away from this. Yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing. The metabolism thrives on change, right? Remember I told you it's adaptive and reactive. The brain too needs and the mind needs to have changeability. Think about it like this. Uh, you know, you're 25, okay? I'm 45. So between 15, you're in, the, you're in what I call the, the wonder zone of life. Between the ages of 15 and 30, life is amazing, right? 
you're falling in love, you're getting your heart broken, you're getting a job, you're getting fired, you're, you're traveling, you're going to school, you're learning all these things and life is beautiful at times and life is terrifyingly difficult at times and you suffer and you grow and you suffer and you grow. And when you look back on the ages from 15 to 30, most people, they go, oh my gosh, that, those were the days. What a wonderful life. I loved that period of time because so much was going on. It's like a good movie. A movie that just is the same always, you know, it's the same mood and nothing changes is a horrible movie. A great movie is one where there's a lot going on, lots of learning and lots of emotional sort of ups and downs. Then after 30 years old, what happens with most people is they get into routine and they get into rhythm and they get very rigid and stable. And it's, it's weird, right? Because somehow they think that that should be their goal right? Because change and challenge can be uncomfortable, but so can stability and certainty be extremely uncomfortable and work against you. So the first thing that you need to do is to begin to see life as a game again and to begin to challenge yourself to be different. What we think is this, right? What we think is I'm going to change how I eat, right? And then we do it and we fail and then we go back to our old routine because the routine is constantly pulling us. And we think that we just need to try again. And we do. But what we don't realize, and here's, here's the to-do piece, is that once you start to expand and say, you know what, not only am I going to try to change my diet, but I'm going to travel more. If I'm afraid to be alone, I'm going to be alone more. If I'm, you know, sort of uh, tend to be more introverted, I'm going to challenge myself to be more extroverted. If I tend, I'm going to start challenging myself again and purposely exposing myself to different things in life. And what happens is your brain is watching you all the time and judging you the same way you watch and judge other people, except even more harshly. And so if you say, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and you don't, the brain starts to go, you're full of shit. You're not going to do anything. I know you're not. And therefore I'm not going to support you. So one of the first things you can do if you're struggling in nutrition is do something different in another realm, challenge yourself in another realm. And the brain goes, Oh, you did do what you, were you said you were going to do. You are stronger than I thought you were. And that can cross over into the nutrition realm. And then also remember this. We humans are dense. I am. You are, Vivian. Sorry. Everyone listening is. We can be dense animals. And we're dense because we go, I want to change so bad. But then we do not want to change up any of our routines at all. And that is just asinine. That is so silly. If you want change, you need to change. You need to start doing things differently. That can be with diet. That can be with exercise. That can be in any other thing in life. I have a concept I call the fear PR. And in, in strength and conditioning research, a PR stands for personal record. And so if I were going to go to the gym with Vivian, and let's say Vivian can deadlift 200 pounds, and she's going to try to get her max deadlift of 210, that's going to feel anxiety producing for Vivian. She's going to be stressed about it. She, but if she tries it, even if she fails, her brain goes, Vivian is somebody who approaches life and does not back down. Well, in the same concept, a fear PR is about doing things a little bit outside of your comfort zone. So if Vivian is afraid of being alone, her first fear PR level one would be Go to the movies by yourself. She'll only be anxious when she's buying the ticket. Once she sits down and watches the movie, that's going to be uh, uh, distract her, you know, right? So she, she won't have an issue. Level two might be go to a dinner by yourself. Level three might be go to a dinner by yourself without your cell phone. 
Level 10 might be go to Paris. You don't speak France. Live there for a week at a hotel. And imagine what that does to your ability to change, even in your nutrition and exercise. So that's number one. That's the first thing. And I would say the second thing that we want to do in this regard is to realize that our purpose is our greatest power. And most people do not think about what their purpose is. Why in the hell are you wanting to get in good shape anyway? If it's so someone recognizes your nice butt or your six-pack abs, that is not a good enough reason. That won't sustain you over the long run. However, if it is to inspire an obese child, or if it is to motivate someone to get healthy, or if it is to simply come across as more powerful and more capable and more credible in your job, and you can think about how your purpose, your chosen purpose, like my, my purpose, Vivian, I don't know what yours is, but I have chosen my purpose to be teacher. So if I am overweight and I am tired and I am unhealthy, I can't teach. And so now that I'm 45, look, my, I'm the ugliest and fattest I've ever been. I, I, would, I would literally not go anywhere and eat better or go to the gym at all if I didn't think that it had something to do with me being a better teacher. So that's the next piece. Tie your fitness and nutrition endeavors to something greater than yourself, and you're going to have a much better chance of changing. Instead of, instead of basing it on vanity concerns, no one when I die is going to look and be like, I love Jade Tita. He had the best abs and best body and was the most beautiful human. They're going to be like, I love that dude because he taught me something and made my world a little bit better in helping me understand. That's at least what I want them to say. More importantly, it's what I want to say on my deathbed. And I think we need to get uh, very clear on that. And when we do, some of this stuff becomes a lot easier. That's so true. I love that whole talk that you just did. And I think it's a perfect way to wrap everything up and coming back to the mindset because usually it's the most important place to start. So maybe we should have actually started here and then gone into all of the diet and fitness things. But yeah, I'm sure people will love to find out more about that. So could you first tell us where they can find more about you online and your book that you have out? Is it Next Level Human? Mm -hmm. um, I have several books. Uh, the latest one is a personal development book and it's a daily read. There's two of them. One's called Next Level Tribe, which is all about personal relationships and setting up boundaries and becoming what I call a next level human or trying to become. And the other one is called Human 365. And it's a daily read that kind of talks a lot about what we just talked about. That last part that you were interested in, Human 365 covers that. And those can be found on Amazon. And then um, the best place to get me is at Jade Tita on Instagram. You know, it, the social media stuff always changes. So who knows where we'll be in five years. But right now, Instagram is where everyone is. And so that's where I am. And I do my best to answer uh, direct messages there. So if you want to DM me, please do. Uh, just, uh, I get a lot. So just be patient. I'll try to get to you or a staff member will get to you. And I have a website, uh, www.jadetita.com. And there's a bunch of uh, programs on that website. If you use the code, all caps, Jade free, you can get all those programs for free. There's one on menopause. There's one on cellulite. There's one on female fat loss in particular. And so just go there and grab what you want. It's sort of my way of giving back. And I'm happy to do that. Yeah, that's so cool. I'm going to link all of the things that we mentioned, all the different studies that I find that you've talked about and your website and everything in the show notes and your podcast as well. That's a great one to listen to along with this one, obviously. 
And then last couple of questions, just for you personally. So what's something that you're into lately? So it sounds like you're a bit of a research nerd. So this can be health related. It could be completely random, but is there something that you're into lately? Yeah. The, you know, the thing that I'm most into right now is um, romantic uh, research, romantic attraction. And I, in my personal life, I had some very embarrassing and difficult times in my personal life. I had an affair and did certain things that I'm not proud of. And here's, here's uh, what I love to do in life that's beautiful is that we all make mistakes and we do crazy stuff. But I've always said anything I do, I want to use those mistakes and those lessons to teach others. And so as a result of that, I have taken a deep dive into understanding what attracts us to certain people, why we stray, um, what romantic relationships mean to us. And it's funny, me and my ex-wife are very close friends now, uh, almost like brother and sister. It's sort of this weird relationship. We're going to be writing a book on this together. So I'm very much uh, into that. And this is where sort of the personal development, a lot of people online have started referring to me as the meathead philosopher. And I just took that moniker. Someone <laughs> called me that. And I was like, you know what? I like it. I'll take it. And so I'm a lot into philosophy and that kind of stuff, in addition to the metabolism stuff. Cool. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, you'll get a lot of that on my mm. um, Instagram feed. I do yeah. a lot with uh, philosophy, romantic stuff, internet business, and metabolism. Yeah. Yeah, you're a great person to follow. One of my favorite accounts for sure. Mm, and you. what's one herb, nutrient, or supplement, or food that you just couldn't live without? Mm. You know, one of the ones that I really use now that I love is one called berberine. Um, B-E-R-B-E-R-I-N-E, berberine. And berberine is, uh, for me, I tend to be one of these people that has a metabolism that is uh, very, uh, you know, carbohydrate reactive. Um, I tend to be pre-diabetic, you know, and I, recently I've seen that, wow, like, you know, I can't actually do what I used to do in my younger years. And berberine is just a wonderful herb for that, um, almost drug-like in its nature. And the other thing it does is really help with uh, the gut. And so that's one for me. But I'll give you one for most of the women listening. One of my favorite for women to uh, help them with their hormonal balance is an herb called Vitex or Chasteberry. And Vitex is uh, a fantastic herb for women who are dealing with premenstrual stuff, people going, women going through perimenopause, and any woman who is over-dieted and lost, uh, lost menses or dealing with fertility issues. It is what I call a female-specific adaptogen. Works, works on men too, but it, it's, uh, it's a great herb uh, for women. Make sure you talk to your physician before yeah. you jump on these things for sure. But those are the, those are the kind of uh, two sort of uh, tidbits for you. Yeah. And Vitex doesn't work for me personally. So I've had negative experience from that one. But Burberry yeah. and I absolutely love as well. I have PCOS. So I'm on the yeah. same spectrum of you, like heading towards high blood sugar, high insulin. So love that one as well. And then final question, Jade, is what is one piece of advice that you want listeners to take away from this? So we've covered so many different aspects of things, the mindset, nutrition, exercise. If they were just to take one thing away from this, what would it be? Uh, well, you, you probably guess, Vivian, I'm going to go philosophical on this one. Here, here's mm. the advice that I would give. Ultimately, what I know about Vivian, I know this about myself, and I know this about every single one of you listening. You're human. Therefore, you have deep pain and suffering whatever it is, a loss of a loved one, loss of a romantic person, um, difficulty at work, uh, insecurities. This is a, what hu being human is all about. Uh, the, the, the Buddhists say life is dukkha, life is suffering. Uh, how do we deal with that? To me, the best way to deal with that that I found is to look at the suffering within yourself and look for places to heal that suffering in other people. And it is the best way 
to uh, begin to soothe that. Now, if you want the metabolism piece, to me, just remember that the metabolism is adaptable and changeable. So you want to be intermittent in your approach, not static. Perfect. Amazing summary and amazing episode. Thank you so much. You're so generous with your time as well. And I really appreciate it. I think everyone's going to benefit so much from this episode and take something really special away from it. So thank you for your time, Jade. Thank you, Vivian, for doing your work. It, it, it matters. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at Viva Natural Health for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next steps to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.